I was blessed when I had the opportunity to share with you guys um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. It might have been a month ago. Somebody asked me the exact time, and I, I don't have the exact time. But I was doing uh, my devos and going through Second Chronicles, and I came on chapter 3, or chapter 29, sorry. And, um, and when I read it, I saw it, I, I really sensed like the Lord put on my heart, this next time I'm asked to share, this is what I'm going to share on. And aside from men's meeting, which happens every first and third Tuesday at 7.30 p.m., uh, you guys can come to that. We're going through Revelation. Only the guys can come, though. Ladies are not invited. But, um, but I knew that this is what the Lord wanted me to share. I, I, the, the Lord's giving us the privilege of having a, a, a parenting seminar on, at the end of February. Um, so just to be aware of that, I thought I was going to share it then. Um, but then this opportunity came up, and I thought, well, this is where the Lord wants me to share it. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Um, just for the sake of context, for, for 2 Chronicles chapter 29, if you look at chapter 27 and 28, um, in 27, I'm, I'm not going to go there. I will go in chapter 28 for a little bit, but in chapter 27, you had a very godly king, King Uzziah, who reigned for 50 years. It's a very long reign. You know, if you think four years or eight years is a long time for a president to be in office, imagine 50 years, you know. And, uh, and so you had uh, King Uzziah for 50 years was this, this godly king that glorified and honored the Lord. And then towards the end of his reign, it was marred by pride. And then his son Jotham reigned. You don't see a lot about Jotham. Um, and, and so you could look at that and be like, well, I guess this guy didn't do much. But he's the only one of the eight good kings of the southern tribe, uh, the southern tribe of, uh, of Israel, the only one of whom no bad thing is said. There's nothing negative spoken of Jotham. And so he becomes kind of this picture of someone that just faithfully did their job. You know, that was serving, that was, uh, it says of him that he was, uh, he prepared his heart to seek the Lord. So you think of Jotham, think of someone who wakes up in the morning and has got to make a bunch of decisions and he prays and says, Lord, what decision do you want me to make here? And according to what he sensed like the Lord put on his heart, that's what he would do. And that's great because any one of us could do that, whether you're king of Israel or not. You know, you could wake up in the morning and whatever your job, your responsibility, your family is, you could pray and say, Lord, what do you want me to do today? What decisions and choices do you want me to make? And God can speak to you and guide you. And you can have a testimony, reputation like that of Jotham. And so here he's faithful, he's diligent, and, 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 and being one of those guys of whom nothing negative is said that's an incredible testament, I think, for each one of us that are here in this place. If you feel like you're a nobody, like I, who, who among us like knows Jotham off the top of our head? <laughs> what, what are some of the great kings of Israel? David, Solomon, you know, Hezekiah, but who would say Jotham? Nobody thinks of Jotham. And yet the Lord would see fit to write his name down and not to have anything negative to say about him. And, 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 and if you're here and you think, well, I'm a nobody, nobody knows my name, you know, nobody knows who I am. Um, can I make any kind of impact that would bless and honor the Lord? Sure you can. Sure you can. Uh, I, I mentioned in the earlier service, I had read a book, I think it's called To End All Wars, if I remember correctly. And um, in it, there was a guy that was captured uh, and he was in a Japanese prison camp and he escaped. Uh, he got saved in, in the Japanese prison camp because he saw the example of Christ-likeness from the other prisoners. And he, uh, he escaped from there, goes through the jungle. And in the book, he mentions that as he was trying to escape, he ran into a missionary, uh, a, a British missionary that had been in the jungles for 26 years, 
didn't know the person's name, but when they saw him, they helped him, and they treated his wounds, they gave him food, and they helped him on his way. He never would have made it out if it weren't for this unnamed person in the jungles of where he was at. And so he said, I know that in heaven, the greatest Christians, the people that have the greatest testimony, the greatest reputation, nobody knows their name. And it's not going to be, you know, the Billy Grahams and the Greg Lorries and the Chuck Smiths, you know. It's going to be somebody who nobody ever heard of <laughs> because they labored faithfully with what they were given and they had no recognition. They didn't have any kind of credit for it. And they were just faithful in doing and being diligent in that. And that could be any one of us, you know. I don't mean to kind of stoke any worldly ambition, but for sure spiritual ambition to honor and bless and glorify the Lord that you think, I want to, I want to run like someone who wants to win this race. I want to win. You know, I want to do better than that guy. <laughs> you know, but, I, but not because I just of that. I just want to glorify and honor the Lord. I want to give it my all. Paul had that kind of an attitude. I want to live for Christ more. I want to live harder for Jesus than anybody else. And so you see that kind of testimony from Jotham, and he reigned for about 16 years, and then his son, King Ahaz, takes all of that legacy, and he decides to burn it. All the foundations that were kind of laid, laid by, by his father, by his grandfather, the relative security and wealth and prosperity of the nation, and he just destroys all of that, and he decides he's going to make as his um, foundation living according to the ten tribes of the north. They were living in idolatry and wickedness, worshiping all kinds of made-up gods. And King Ahaz, this, this guy, decides, that's what I want to do. I want to I leave all this stuff. I'm going to worship those idols. And, and in so doing, he gets attacked by the ten tribes of the north, defeated by them, carried away captive by them. Isn't that how it always is? You choose to live for the world. Maybe the world will save you, help you. The demands, the requirements, expectations seem to be lighter. They give you what you want. And, and wouldn't you know it, the world comes in and defeats you and destroys you and carries off your family captive, carries you away captive. And that's how, that's how Hezekiah did. And when this happened to him, you'd think getting this kind of consequence from the Lord for his sin, he'd repent. He doesn't repent. He doubles down on his sin. And he says, you know, I'm just worshiping the wrong idols. I got to go after the gods of Damascus. I got to go after the gods of, of Assyria. And he, and he just keeps looking anywhere and everywhere else as long as it's not the Lord, as long as it's not God. I got to find somewhere I can put my hope and faith and trust in that isn't the Lord. And so he doubles down on his sin. And this is his testimony. You could look at um, chapter 28, verse... Uh, 19, it says, The Lord brought Judah low because of Ahaz, the king of Israel. For he encouraged the moral decline. That's worth underlining, circling in your Bible. He encouraged the moral decline in Judah and had become continually unfaithful to the Lord. And so encouraging the moral decline, that's anything that is debauched, anything that is sinful, anything that is immoral, that is abominable in the eyes of the Lord, no matter how shameful, that gets a platform. That should be, people should have the opportunity to experience it, anything. No matter how horrible it might seem to your sensitivity, except God. God should not have a platform. The Lord should not have an opportunity to communicate righteousness and holiness. 
But anything else, any other kind of sin you can think of that has rights, you know? And so he encouraged the moral decline. If you look at the, the, the original language, it says that he made the nation of Judah. If you have the old King James, it says he made the nation naked. And he, he stripped away the spiritual modesty of the nation. There's no more modesty. You know, in Spanish, you have sinvergüenza. The whole nation became sinvergüenza. And so, and, so and, and it was because of him, and it was because he went after these things that he introduced them into the nation. And he was continually unfaithful to the Lord. And also Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, they came to him and distressed him and not, did not assist him. So he takes, well, let's keep reading. For Ahaz took part of the treasures of the house of the Lord and from the king, and from the house of the king and from the leaders and gave it to the king of Assyria, but he did not help them. Another you know, classic move. I'm going to take all the treasures of the house of the Lord. I'm going to take everything that belongs to God that we use for worship. I'm going to give it to this pagan king. And then the pagan king says, thanks, and then comes and destroys him and attacks him and oppresses him. And, and whenever we put our faith and trust in the world to help us, in the world to save us, in the world to fix our problems, it's only going to betray. It's going to take from you and it's going to betray you. If you put your trust and faith in your flesh, to save you and to help you. It's only going to betray you in the end. And he found these things, but his response, does he repent yet? Verse 22, Now in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is this King Ahaz. This is that King Ahaz. He's like, if, you know, the, the, the horrible one? This is that one. You know, <laughs> That when things got worse for him and harder for him, he went further away from God. And, and there's something to be said. There's a kind of person. It's a very kooky attribute in people that you can disobey the Lord. You can live according to all the things that God says he'll punish and, and, and bring consequences on. And then when the consequences start coming, when the challenges start coming, then be like, and that is why there is no God. Because if there was a God, would all these terrible things be happening to me? And he blames God when in reality the judgment that's upon him is because there is a God. It's because God is being faithful to all of his word. Because if you live your life that way, that's what this produces. And so here King Ahaz is blaming the Lord. And then he's saying, well, you know what I got to do is he uh, sacrificed the gods of Damascus he because uh, which had defeated him. So he gets defeated by the gods of Damascus in Syria. He says, I'm going to worship those gods. Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. So Ahaz gathered the articles of the house of God, and he's going he's gonna to make God pay for it. He cuts in pieces the articles of the house of God, shuts up the doors of the house of the Lord, made for himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. And in every single city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke the anger of the Lord God of his fathers. Now the rest of his acts and all his ways from first to last, are they not written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel? So Ahaz, verse 27, rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of Jerusalem. But they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel for Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. And so here is a guy that he doubles down on his sin and when the consequences come for that, he, gets, he doubles down on his sin again and he gets harder and harder in his heart against the Lord. He's rejecting the Lord. He shuts the doors of the tabernacle. He nails them shut and he makes it a place to throw your garbage. Like just throw all your refuse in there. And so 
in verse 29, in chapter 29, we read about his son. Now, I'd expect from something like that, from a legacy like that, to, to have a, the next chapter almost, I don't want to read it. Like, how terrible is this going to be? This is the son of that guy. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abijah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. So there's just a couple of things to note there. You look at Hezekiah. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. We read that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Very ungodly father. Very, it would seem, I, I, I don't know a lot of details about his mother, but his mother's name means Jehovah is my father. And Zechariah, uh, his grandfather on his mother's side means Jehovah remembers. Hezekiah, his name means Jehovah has made me strong. And so I don't know a lot of details about his mother or his grandfather on his mother's side, but I, I, I wonder if this is the influence of a godly mother. And if it is, man, to anybody out there that is a godly mother with an ungodly spouse, that is the father of your kids and you think there's no hope for my kids, there's no hope, there's no change, there's no difference, nothing could possibly happen to help my kids get out of this future. You don't know the power of a godly wife, godly mother. It can make an incredible difference. And the other thing that comes to mind about Hezekiah is that he was 25 years old. I am 39 this year, I think. Last I checked. There's always a measure of uncertainty. Um, but I'm 39 which means that when I think about when I was 25, I'm like, oh, that's when I was young. You know, the older you are, the more you think of like 25 as being when you're young. Now, if you're here and you just came into the sanctuary, you'd be like, 25 is when I'm old, you know? I'm gonna own a house by then, you know, whatever. But, you know, when, when, from my perspective, what were you thinking about when you were 25 years old? I, I, when I was 25, you know, what were you worrying about? When you were 25. I don't think any of us are really in the position that Hezekiah was in. Because most of us kind of struggle from feeling like we don't have much control over what happens in our country. Or in this world. We don't. We feel like that. We feel like we have no say. We feel like there's really not much of a difference that could be made. Imagine at 25 years old, you become the most powerful person in the country. I, mean, I, I uh, shudder to think what my lack of uh, wisdom and experience would have produced at that, at that position in place. And yet here Hezekiah comes into it and he has the opportunity to choose whether he's going to follow in the footsteps of his father or if he's going to do something different. And at this, the, the, the position in which the country that he inherits from his father is at, they're the enemies of, uh, remember that the north had attacked and carried away captive uh, some of the people of the southern kingdom? By this point, the Assyrians had attacked the northern kingdom and carried them all away captive. They're gone. There is no northern kingdom anymore. You know, there's a ragtag group of people left behind that are mixed in with other people from surrounding areas. And then the Assyrians that had just defeated them are now building up or amassing their troops at the border of the southern kingdom of Israel. So now you inherit a kingdom, right? Yay! <laughs> and you have, at the door, you've got the enemy piling up their tanks and chariots and horses and, and, and artillery. 
I mean, that's not a position I would want to be in. And I'd be like, no, thanks. You know, they'll, they'll be in charge. <laughs> I don't know what to do. But he takes this responsibility. And the first thing that he decides that he wants to do is that he's going to take all of the legacy of his father and say, I don't want to live that way. I don't want that to be the standard. I've seen what that produced. By my horrible math, Christopher's math, I think he would have been like nine when Jotham died. He would have seen a reign of nine years of prosperity and blessing and wealth, worshiping and serving the Lord. Then the rest of his lifetime, he would have seen his father burning all that and doing his own thing and what that produced in the nation of Israel. And so sometimes we don't have the privilege of learning everything from just, uh, I mean, I I hope, I pray. I, I don't like learning everything from it happening to me, from me making all the bad decisions. I like to also learn from the bad decisions of other people so that I don't have to do that. (laughs) So, you know, here he sees Jotham. He sees what that produced. He sees Ahaz and what that produced. And he decides in his life that I don't want to just do things as well as my father did or like my father did. I want to do things better than that. I don't want him to be the standard. I want God's word to be the standard. And we have to decide in our lives and in our lifetime, what's going to be the standard? Is the standard going to be what you experienced, what you went through, how it happened to you? Or are you going to say, insofar as that compares to the scriptures, I'll take it. But insofar as that does not compare with what the standard is in Scripture, I am going to discard all of that and I'm going to rebuild whatever my life is going to be, whatever my family is going to look like, whatever my, my, my everything, my, my everything is going to be, it's going to be on the basis of the standard of the Word of God. I'm going to open the Scriptures and that's how I'm going to live my life. And it would seem that that's what Hezekiah did because he decided to make David, I mean, I'm, going to look, look, I'm going to serve the Lord like David did, a man after God's own heart. It's only said of four people, of four of the good kings. It was said of Asa, of Jehoshaphat. It was said of Josiah and of Hezekiah. Those are the only four guys of whom this is said. And he decided that's going to be my legacy. I want to serve the Lord with love and passion and devotion to the Lord. And then his priority, when he uh, inherits this kingdom, I mean, what, what would you do? Would you get the... Uh, military ready, I, I, would, I would be thinking very practically at that point. I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to make sure we have weapons. I'm going to, you know, get the strongholds at the key areas. I need my strategists in here. The Assyrians are getting ready to attack. What are you going to do? His first priority, verse 3, in the first year of his reign, in the first month. Now, we're in a season where people are really talking about what they're going to do in their first hundred days of presidency. That's kind of become a tradition. That you say, well, in my first hundred days, this is all the stuff I'm going to do. And and the reason why that's become important is because it's become a a litmus test for what are the priorities of that leader, right? This is what I'm going to do first. This is what's most important to me. It's become a litmus test. But now here you see in his first year, and not just in his first hundred days, in his first 30 days, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and he repaired them. He said, the first thing I'm going to do, the nations are are getting ready to destroy us and attack us. This is a a horrible, like it's the house is on fire. You know, (laughs) this is like, you just just bought a house and it's on fire. You know, you inherited it. And and you just realized, man, this is an urgent situation. The first thing he does is, I got to open the house of the Lord. And so I I want to ask, it has to be asked, what do you do when you're going through a crisis? 
when there's a challenge that's so great in your life that it's tempting to have it overwhelm your senses. We're all going to go through it. If you haven't gone through it before, you will go through it at some point in your life. I've gone through it a few times already. I'm only 39. But you will go through seasons in your life where that problem, that challenge, that difficulty will be so great that the temptation will be just to allow it to carry you on, on the current of fear and anxiety and doubt. And you're just like being tossed to and fro, to and fro. You've got no control over it. It has control over you. What do you do in that situation? Well, Josiah said the first thing, I mean, Hezekiah said the first thing that I need to do is I need to get into the presence of the Lord. I need, I need to hear God's voice. I need to see this in the perspective that I can only get from being in God's presence. I gotta get the, I gotta get the church doors open. Because I got to see God. I got to know what to do. Where else are we going to go to get know what to do? When Hez, later on, you're going to see when Hezekiah is attacked by the Assyrians, he takes the letter they give and he runs into the temple and he spreads it out in the presence of the Lord. Thank God he opened the doors by that point. So this isn't like a... I'm not saying what you think I'm saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is, where do you go? So you have a crisis, you have a problem, you have a difficulty. But if the Lord's saying what you think I'm saying, then I'll take it. But if you're going through a crisis or difficulty, what's, what do you do? Do you check your bank account? Oh, man, can I, can I fix this? Can I solve this? Do you call your family? Do you call your friends? Help. Do you know what I'm going through? Do you know what so-and-so did? Do you know what I'm worried about? Do you go to a doctor? I'm not against doctors. I'm not against, you know, money or family or friends. But is the first place that we go there? Well, that might be a tell of a problem. The first place we should go into the presence is into the presence of God. Say, Lord, what do you think? When the country looks like it's burning, God, what do you think? God, what does the word say? Am I going to, you know, look at social media? Am I going to flip on the television? Or am I going to open my Bible? It's a crazy thing that occurred to me this last week that there's, there are, I, hmm, pulling back, pulling back. There was a time or season in my life where I really struggled with Bible prophecy. Where I thought, I don't, I don't know if I understand this. I don't know if I really, you know, there's a tendency to like tune out because I can't get all this. Don't be discouraged if you don't get it all at once. But hear it because... In a time like this, I am so grateful that the Lord helped me with that fairly recently, within the last couple of years, that I was just like, whoa, I understand it. This is blowing my mind. Because now, when I go through what I'm going through and what I'm watching in, on television, I have perspective. Bible prophecy, which is what's going to happen, is giving me perspective for my right now. It's showing me how I should be responding and reacting, what my heart should look like. And I'm so grateful that the Lord helped me with that. And if you've never really gotten it, I, I know somebody, and this kind of irked me a lot, but they, they knew somebody, so this is secondhand knowledge. They said, oh, I, I, I never get anything from Bible prophecy, so I just kind of don't go into those teachings. I'm like, are you kidding me? The spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, you know? So are you going to not even hear that if you don't like Bible prophecy, I don't know if you like Jesus. <laughs> you know, I was like struggling with it. I'm not saying that about you. I, I've been there for a long time. I just needed to understand it better. But, um, but here from Hezekiah's perspective, him showing that this is his priority. Not only is this his priority, but he's taking the initiative. 
He's not waiting for somebody else to do it. I'm going into the presence of the Lord. We need to get the doors of the house of the Lord open. We need to be worshiping the Lord more than ever before. How else are we going to have any hope if we're not seeking and serving the Lord? The word initiative means an introductory act or step leading action, readiness and ability, initiating action, one's personal responsible decision. And so he opens, uh, he opens the house of the Lord. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, uh, let me, again, I'm not against these things necessarily, but when these kinds of things happen, what do we do? Do we stockpile? You know, do we go buy guns and ammo? Or do we, I like having food in my house. I have a deep freezer. Or do we seek the Lord? Do we seek the Lord? Do we fall on our faces in the presence of the Lord and say, Lord, what do I do? What is happening? How do I respond? It would seem to me that Hezekiah did, and this is what he came back with. He opened the doors of the house of the Lord. He repaired them. And then he brought in the priests and the Levites, and he gathered them into the east square, and he said to them, Hear me, Levites. Now uh, sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from this place. And so he's calling upon them to sanctify themselves. He's calling the spiritual leaders to come in and sanctify themselves. And as you keep reading what happens, it says, verse 6, Now, our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and have forsaken him and have turned their faces away from dwelling the dwelling place of the Lord, and have turned their backs on him. So as Hezekiah is pleading with them, here's part of the problem that the spiritual leaders had. And if the spiritual leaders have this problem, then you know the people have this problem. They made their standard the world. As long as we are just a little bit better than the world, we're good. We're Christians. We're believers. We're going to heaven. It's locked in. But if your standard is just being a little bit better than the world, the problem with that is the world is getting worse. So if you're measuring yourself by the world, as the world gets worse, you're getting worse and you don't even realize it because the distance between you and the world, that's staying the same. Maybe it's even getting better. But you're, you're still following and measuring yourself by the world. So maybe what would be horrible for you right now, like right now, you'd never do this. I mean, that's terrible. That's so sinful. 5, 10, 15 years from now, as the world gets worse, it's not that big of a deal for you because your standard is the world. And, and from a biblical perspective, this should be our standard. This is our standard no matter what the world is doing, no matter what the world is saying, this is our standard. And then if you make God's word your standard, that's unchanging. The world's going to fade away. It's going to be destroyed. But God's word is going to remain the same. His heart is the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he then is my standard, then I don't have to worry about it. Because now what happens is God is ready to do a work. God has raised up this godly king that wants to change things. And we look at our situation around us and be like, this is so terrible. There's no way this could ever get fixed, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on. There's no way this could ever get fixed. But the Lord can change it in a heartbeat. If the Lord raises up somebody, and I'm not talking politically, I'm talking spiritually, that brings God's people back to a place of repentance, in one generation, the whole nation's going to be turned around. In one generation. God can do it in a heartbeat, but here's the problem. The spiritual leaders, which should be all of us, were not ready. So then Hezekiah said, 
I'm ready to get right with the Lord. I need you all to get right with the Lord. You gotta sanctify yourselves. And I'm not giving you this because I'm assuming a position of being like above you guys and I'm already and you're not. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is I do think God wants to do something and I don't know if we're all ready for it. And I think that's why God is emphasizing holiness. That's why God is emphasizing that our hearts would be broken for him and for the things of the Lord. That's why God is making it a priority and a responsibility for us to assume our walk with God and to serve him with all of our might for us to be faithful and diligent because I think God is doing something and wants to do something. And it's really important that if he is, that we be sanctified and holy and prepared and ready and that it wouldn't be that once God is ready to move, these priests, these Levites are not ready to move as fast as Hezekiah is. So they have to get their act together. So the call goes out, guys, you got to get your act together because I am moving right now. Are you ready? And so then there's a call for all of us as believers for this to be real, for this to be genuine. And he says, I, I want you to get your standard right. you got to sanctify yourselves. And then in verse 6, I see, verse 6 through 9, I see a confession. Our fathers have trespassed and done evil in the eyes of the Lord. Man, confession means the acknowledgement and open declaration of guilt, failure, uh, debt, accusation. In the, in the Greek, in the New Testament, the word they use is homologeo, which means to say the same thing as another, to agree with, to assent, to concede. And so when the Lord says that a sin is a sin, Am I agreeing with the Lord that that sin is a sin? Or am I rationalizing it? Am I taking the edge off of the guilt and responsibility that I bear for the sins that are in my own heart that I haven't repented of? Because if I am trying to give excuses or if I'm rationalizing it, I have not confessed my sins before the Lord. There's a tendency in us to give excuses. You know, we lie, just to throw out an example out there, and then the Lord says that lying is a sin. And instead of saying lying is a sin, I deserve to go to hell for my lie, we say, oh, it was a, lie, a white lie. It was a lie. It wasn't technically a lie. It was just a deception. Or it was, you know, and, or we throw out all these things to kind of cover over the guilt of responsibility. And what we're saying is we don't bear the full guilt and responsibility. Listen, if you don't bear the full guilt and responsibility of it, I have good news for you. You don't need to repent of that because you're not responsible for it. But what about the bit you are responsible for, that you have no excuse for, that you need to repent of? Because the Bible says that liars will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So we can continue trying to pretend like our sins are not sins and continue to walk and live in them, ignorant of what it will produce in our life. But sin is sin. So, and, and I, I, I'm... I almost apologize to any liars in the congregation, but I don't know if I'm I'm trying to help you. <laughs> I'm trying to help myself. This is me too. It's just the example that came you know, out of the blue. Idolatry, covetousness. These are things that are serious in the eyes of the Lord. And are they serious in the eyes of Christopher Rodriguez? Because that is confession. Confession is to say, this is serious. This is as serious as you say it is. And I need to get this out of my life. I need to repent I need to repent. I need to change, God. Help me. I'm surrendering my life to you. Forgive me, Lord. Get me out of this, Lord, before it kills me. As, as innocent as that might seem, that sin might seem in your life and heart, if the Lord is impressing it upon your heart, the Lord is impressing it upon your heart for a reason, because it's important. I don't have any money in mind when I'm saying that, but maybe the Holy Spirit does. 
the enemy of repentance is excuses. Oh, I'm not, it's not, you don't understand technically if you thought. That's how Saul lived. Saul destroyed his own life because he never repented. He would acknowledge, oh, yeah, yeah, I messed up. But the people made me feel really uncomfortable. And technically you said, you know, it's like, come on, man. Just get right with the Lord. Get rid of the sin. He wants to forgive you. He wants to cleanse you. But we got to get past that hump of our own pride and humble ourselves and confess the way that he confessed. He said, we, we are the ones. Our fathers, they, they disobeyed knowing what they were doing. They've also, verse 7, shut up the doors of the vestibule. The vestibule was the entrance hall to the temple on the east side. It was 30 feet by 15 feet, and it was the height of the temple. And so they had shut the doors. So people that wanted to go worship, they couldn't go worship. People that wanted to seek the Lord, they couldn't go seek the Lord. If you wanted to offer a sacrifice, you couldn't offer a sacrifice. The doors were closed. He says, we... They shut the doors to the vestibule and put out the lamps, and they have not burned incense or offered burnt offerings to the holy place in the holy place of the God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and he has given them up to trouble, to desolation, and to jeering. So trouble means horror. That's a, that's a strong word. Horror, trembling, abject terror. Desolation means waste, Horror, appallment, ruin. That's appalling, you know. And then jeering is hissing, whistling, derision. I, I do it now, but I'm probably uh, too nervous to whistle. But you'd be like, ooh, you know, imagine in my head I'm whistling. And, uh, and then this is what's become of the nation. And then he doesn't, have to, um, he doesn't have to convince them that that's what's become of the nation. He says, as you see with your eyes. There was a time not too long ago, when if I was teaching this passage of Scripture, I would have to explain to you what that means. But I don't have to because you can see it with your eyes right now. The Lord giving up the nation to desolation and jeering and derision and horror. You, you see it with your eyes. That's worth noting. Time is moving forward, and the prophetic view is falling more and more into place. I don't even have to explain what this means. You see it with your eyes. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword. And, and this is a verse that really impacted me, because we can read through this and not stop to think about it. But if you stop and take a moment and think about your father and your grandfather, you think about your son or your daughter or your wife. For Hezekiah to say, this is the reason our fathers fell. This is the reason I lost my dad. This is the reason why our fathers have fallen by the sword. This is the reason why my son and my daughter and my wife was carried off into captivity, guys. So how are we not going to sanctify ourselves? Hasn't it cost us enough? They were carried off into captivity. And then he says, this is the reason why he's talking to them, because he says in verse 10, he says, I, now I have it, it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel 
that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. So Hezekiah says, this is why I'm telling you this, guys. I want to commit my life to the Lord. I want to commit this nation to the Lord. And I'm going to do it. Because I want the wrath of God to turn. And it's the only way. Commitment means the act of making a solemn promise or agreement to do or to refrain from doing something. It's a declaration, written or verbal, made by one person to another, which binds the person who makes it, either in honor, conscience, or law, to do or forbear a certain act specified. A declaration which gives the person to whom it is made a right to expect or to claim the performance or forbearance of an act. So this is essentially what he's saying. A, a commitment is when you give that somebody else the right to expect something of you. Some of us like to, you know, I don't like to make a commitment. I, I, you know, what are you doing next Saturday? Why are you asking? You want me to move? I'm busy, you know? <laughs> or, you know, some of us have that kind of attitude. Listen, I'm very, very hesitant to be wrapped into a commitment that I didn't know what, you know, you're asking me to do. But when you're making a commitment to the Lord, you're saying, I am giving you the right, God, to expect me to live a certain way. And we all say, I hope I pray. If you haven't, you can still say it now. Well, you still can. That you've committed your life to the Lord. That that means I have given God the right to expect something of me. That's something to think about it on those terms. You've bound yourself to the Lord and you've given God the right to expect you to live a certain way, to treat your wife a certain way, to treat your husband a certain way, to treat your kids a certain way, to treat your employees and employer a certain way. God has the right to expect that of you if you are a Christian. That's what it means to have committed your life to the Lord. And Hezekiah says, I have, I have it in my heart to commit to make a covenant with the Lord. I want to promise him something. And I want us to be ready to do that. That we may turn his fierce wrath from us. Verse 11, my sons. Who's he talking to? He's talking to the Levites. He's talking to the priests. And he's talking to them with a term. He could have called them anything he wanted to. You know, he could have called them you knuckleheads or whatever he wanted to call. You know, you guys, you know, who do you think you are? They hadn't earned this. But he's speaking to them with tenderness, with kindness, with humility, with meekness. He's speaking to them as sons. And to me, this changes the whole dynamic of this to a family meeting. You're talking to your wife and your kids. There's nobody else around you're wearing your comfortable sweatpants, whatever it is. You know, you're there. You're saying, my sons, my wife, my kids, guys, I have it in my heart. And then he says to them with a tenderness and kindness and honor and respect that they had not earned, do not be negligent now. Now is not the time for negligence. Because they had been negligent. The word negligent means to mislead, to be careless, apt or accustomed to omit what ought to be done and inattentive to the necessary. So guys, my sons, you've gotten used to omitting what you should have done. You've gotten used to 
not attending to things that are necessary. And now is not the time for that anymore. I have it in my heart to commit my life to the Lord. And now is the time for us to be diligent. Now is the time, like never before. And then he gives him the reason for it. Now is the time. Do not be negligent now. For the Lord has chosen you. I think of the last teaching that Pastor Zach did here. And and towards the end, he concluded with, man, the crazy stuff that's happening in this world. I don't know. He said, if I would choose this generation to be going through this. But, man, it kind of woke me up. God chose me to be here right now. He, He chose you to be here right now. As we see this stuff happening in this world, and, he, and, and you know, most of us are like panicking, like, what in the world? What are we supposed to do? What does this even mean? I've never even seen this before. To think that you're the one God put here right now to deal with it. You're the one. And your kids. And your kids' kids. Chosen by God to address the situation. Man, I got I to gotta talk to God. Give me a second, guys. I got to go pray. (laughs) You know, I got to find out from the Lord what his heart and his desire is for how my reaction and response should be to this situation. The Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that you should minister before him and burn incense. So God has chosen you to stand in his presence the true and the holy God that when Isaiah saw him said, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips. Job said, I thought I was righteous in my own eyes, but now I am but dust before you. Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Whenever you see somebody in the presence of God, there is a brokenness inside because you realize you're now comparing yourself to what actually is the standard, the holy and awesome and perfect God. And then you think, I'm unraveling like an old piece of cloth. You know, like a t-shirt I should have thrown out like three years ago. It's now unraveling at the seams. And that's how people are whenever they stand before the presence of the Lord. And what he, Hezekiah, is saying specifically to the Levites and the priests is, God has chosen you to stand before him. You guys aren't just anybody. You guys are the people that have access to the very presence of God. And for all of us here in this room, every single one of us here in this room, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have more access to the presence of God than any of these priests did. Because there was a veil that kept God's presence from most of them for most of the year. And once a year, they were allowed access into God's presence. And they tie a rope around their waist in case there was some kind of hidden sin inside of their heart. And then they would just drop dead. No time for excuses, you know. And then they'd be pulled back out. Okay, let's, who's the next high priest? But in Christ, that veil was torn. We all have access to the presence of God. God has chosen you to stand before him and to serve him and to minister to him. Do not be negligent now. Not now. And as you keep reading through this passage, because I'm out of time, as you keep reading through this passage, if you look through verses 15 through verses 19, you're going to see that when they go to clean out the house of the Lord, they don't start on the vestibule and work their way to the inside. It's really worth noting that they go to the inside. They go to the inner place, and then they start cleaning out from the inside out. And isn't that how sanctification should be when God is cleansing us? 
Sanctification, the process whereby God changes our desires to be his desires for him. When God gives us more and deeper love for him. And it has to happen on the inside out. It can't go the other way. And then the last verse I want to look at is in verse 34 and 35. So even with all of this, But the priests were too few so that they could not skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore, their brethren, the Levites, helped them with the work until the work was ended and until the other priests had sanctified themselves for the Levites were more diligent in sanctifying themselves than the priests. And also the burnt offerings were in abundance and the fat of the peace offerings with the drink offerings for every burnt offering. So the service of the house of the Lord was set in order and Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people. So God prepares the people, but after all of this, you've got the priests, which would kind of for us be like the pastors, and then you've got the Levites, which would be like the deacons or the elders, the overseers, right, of the ministries. And in this case, the priests were not as diligent in sanctifying themselves as the Levites were. Because when the Levites heard that, they went home and they cleansed their own houses. And they went and they sanctified the sanctuary. There was a zeal and a passion and a diligence in them, but not in the priests. The priests were slower to it. And what's, the reason why I want to mention that is because the honor of doing the service went to the people who applied themselves diligently to the sanctification. And I don't know if we always view service that way. It's a privilege. It's an honor. It ought not to be a weariness. Oh, I gotta, you know, I feel bad. And sometimes it'll betray us, you know? Where we think, oh, I gotta wake up in the morning. Oh, I gotta go do this. Oh, I gotta do that. Oh, I feel bad asking so-and-so to help serve. You feel bad asking so-and-so to help serve? Come on, it's a blessing. It's a privilege. If that's how you feel about it, don't ask them to serve. And you don't serve. Get somebody else, step out, you know, get out of the way. I'm not talking to anybody, but get out of the way and get somebody standing behind you that's zealous and passionate for the things of the Lord, for whom it is rightfully a privilege to stand in the presence of God and serve him. Because there's plenty of people that love Jesus enough. Plenty of people. Now, I have been raised with such a great and gracious pastor that has had so much patience with me. And you know what he taught me? He taught me, the reality is, get out of the way and get somebody else to do it. <laughs> but his grace and grace, uh, his grace towards me has been, he's taught me, it's even better if you repent. It's even better if you get your heart right. And I'm grateful he did, because there's been a lot of times when I've thought it's a weariness. So if you're in a place and you've forgotten that it's a privilege to serve the Lord, it's a privilege to be in his presence, it's a privilege to be a believer. People are hiding the fact that they're Christians. It's a privilege to be a believer in this day and age. Then repent. Get your heart right. The, the Lord would say to, in the book of Malachi to his servants, to the people that were, and I'm not, I'm not beating up the servants. We've got the best servants in the world in this church. Seriously, the best servants in the world in this church. But if it brings a check to our spirit and heart, it's necessary. In the book of Malachi, the people were saying, oh, the weariness of the table of the Lord, the table of the Lord. I'm so tired of having to serve the Lord. The Lord said, I would rather you shut the door 
Like, don't even come to worship. So that's an incredible contrast. Hezekiah says, we got to get the doors open. But there can be an attitude in our hearts as believers where the Lord says, I'd rather you shut the door and get your heart right. Because you know, the Lord sees our heart. We can come in and pretend and have a smile. And, you know, it's a fake smile. It's a fake pretense of some kind of joy and zeal that we don't have. And the Lord says, I, I see your heart. If you're begrudging to give me something, it's not like the Lord is desperate to have somebody work. He could do it all himself. He said, I, th- I thought it was an act of joy, of gratitude, of blessing. If you want to give me something, I'd love to receive it. It's like when my four-year-old paints something, you know, or cuts something out. It's like, wow, this is awesome. This is so great. This is for me. Thank you. I put that on the refrigerator for a while. For a while. Can't leave it there forever. But, you know, it's, it's a great, the Lord receives it from your hand. Thank you so much, you know. But then we feel like, oh, I got to paint Jesus a picture. Oh, I got to paint it, trying. It's like, no, thanks. You know, just go ahead and toss it. You know, I don't want that kind of attitude, you know. If it's an offering, the Lord would love to receive it. But if it's a begrudging, bitter thing, then the Lord says, I love a cheerful giver. I love a cheerful giver. Give it with a good heart, with a great heart. Anyway. I love you. God loves you. Worship team, please come up. If you're here and you've never accepted the Lord as your Savior, I, I just I want to ask you to come up and pray with one of the pastors and tell them, I need to be saved. If you're here and you're convicted because you realize that there's areas of your life that are not fully surrendered to the Lord, that there's been negligence in your own life, in your own home, with your own family, or in your worship to the Lord, then come up and, and, and pray with one of the pastors just because we want to pray with you. Just I, I, I plead with you to get right with the Lord before you go because the timeline is bonkers. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Jesus could come back. It would be far greater if you got right with the Lord here and humbled yourself, right? But what would people say? What if they see me, you know? If you, I'll, I'll throw this out there. If you're doing great and you want to thank Jesus for how awesome your life is and how well you're doing, come up and pray with one of the pastors there. Now you can hide amongst them and come and pray with one of the pastors. But if Jesus comes back tomorrow, would you rather leave here with the same mess that God convicted you of and then have to answer to the Lord for it? Or would you rather get right with the Lord before you go so that when you stand before the Lord, he's already worked on your heart. He's already worked on your marriage. You've already surrendered your life to him in the compromises in your life to him. Being here in this building will not save you. Walking in here on a Sunday, sitting through me talking, it's an ordeal. Believe me, I know. Pray for my wife. But that's not going to save you. You need to surrender your life to the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word, God, and for your mercy towards us, Lord, that you love us still, that you call us to yourself still. Lord, please, I pray that you would do this work, that it wouldn't just be a message that's taught, but that there would be real and genuine repentance in our life and a transformation in us, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, for your, uh, your mercy, your, your willingness to receive us, Lord. Um, help us to not sin against the privilege uh, of, of being uh, shown grace and mercy, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.